Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 368. Today's big Bible questions, did the Romans take Jesus' life, and does Satan live in hell? Well, hello, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. We have arrived at the final countdown, three days to go, and only two more episodes after this one today. But don't abandon ship just yet, because we will still be here for season three of this podcast, Lord willing, and I believe it will be different, but still daily and still Bible and still featuring amazing guest stars like Hugh Jackman, Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Queen Elizabeth II, and Archduke Ferdinand. Okay, maybe some of that was a bit of a stretch, but we are planning on continuing daily into 2021, maybe a little bit shorter, maybe a little bit different, but still focused on the Word of God. I hope you'll join us and tell your friends about it. Today, we will be reading from 2 Chronicles 34, Malachi chapter 2, a very, very hard-hitting chapter, John 19, and Revelation 20. Two questions today, and we are going to lead off with our question from Revelation first. Where does Satan live? We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Ask most Americans and they will tell you that Satan lives and rules in hell. They might envision him sitting on a throne with a pitchfork in hand or going around hell and greeting newcomers and making them do terrible things for punishment. The idea given in popular culture is that Satan inhabits hell and enjoys it there and his, quote, job is to make it hard on everybody that is bad and has been sent to hell. Now, this is balderdash and is honestly silly in terms of what the Bible actually teaches about hell. Where does Satan live now? Well, apparently he lives on the earth and is the ruler of the world, according to Jesus. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So, Satan is the ruler of the world. Now, is he under the authority of God? Absolutely he is, but he has an incredibly high position of authority on earth, on the world. He's also apparently the ruler of the air or the atmosphere, I think is what's meant there. According to Paul the Apostle, Ephesians 2, 2, Paul's, uh, 2 1 and 2, Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now walking, working in the disobedient. So does Satan live and rule in hell? Of course he doesn't. Absolutely not. He lives and rules on the earth. But one day, oh glorious day, he will indeed dwell in hell. Let's read all about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, great, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the devil most assuredly won't be ruling in hell. He will be disciplined in hell. Second question for us, and it's a bit of a trick question. Did the Romans take Jesus's life? And I believe the answer to that question is no, they did not. To take something from somebody seems to imply some sort of force or deception But this is not at all what happens in the crucifixion of Jesus. The fact of the matter is nobody took Jesus' life from him. He gave it of his own accord. Well, let's read John 19 and read about that. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat on a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, Here is your king. And they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. 
Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one place from the top. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen clothes with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. So, did the Romans kill Jesus? Well, here's the thing. In a sense, they were just following orders. Very clearly, Pilate, who was in charge, wanted to have nothing to do with killing Jesus, but he gave in to the Jewish leaders who were insistent and demanded that Jesus be crucified. So, does that mean the Jews take Jesus' life, or did the Romans take Jesus' life? And again, I believe the answer is neither. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave it. Remember yesterday's reading when Peter knocked that guy's ear off, Malchus the servant of the high priest? Jesus responded to that violence with this statement, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is very clear that he is willingly going to his death and going to his death at the behest of his Father. Certain people tried to kill Jesus many times during his ministry, 
but they never succeeded until he let them, until he laid down his life. Pastor Tim Keller has some good insights on the importance of Jesus laying down his own life rather than it being taken from him. And he says, Jesus says in verse 17, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So Jesus Christ is the one shepherd who lays down his life. If you take a look at Jacob, Jacob was a great shepherd. He worked for his father-in-law Laban. And there's a place where Jacob comes and says, If I lose any sheep, either if they're stolen or they're devoured by beasts with my own hand, I will repay and recompense you. But he doesn't say, I'm going to die for the sheep. You know, David, we're told David was a great shepherd who, when a lion and a bear came and took some sheep away, he followed that lion or bear and both of them tracked them down and killed them. He was willing to risk his life for his sheep. But do you think he would have gone if he would know, if he had known the only way to get those sheep back was to forfeit his life? No. David and Jacob were great shepherds, fine shepherds, but they're not going to die for the sheep. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ as a shepherd is he gives his life. He lays down his life for his sheep and he lays it down voluntarily. He says, no one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. This is the will of God. He has given me authority to do that. That's not suicide, but my father has given me this command. My father has given me this authority and I willingly do it. What is our response to the good shepherd Jesus who lays down his life for his sheep? Well, utter gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. We continue in our readings with Second Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. And in the twelfth year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Then in his presence, the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images, crushed them to dust, and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altar, so he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars, and he smashed the Asherah poles and the carved images to powder. He chopped down all of the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land in the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Masaiah, the governor of the city, and the court historian Joah, son of Jehoiaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So they went to the high priest Hilkiah and gave him silver brought into the Lord's temple. The Levites and the doorkeepers had collected it from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from the entire remnant of Israel, and from all Judah, Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They gave it to those doing the work, those who oversaw the Lord's temple. They gave it to the workmen who were working in the Lord's temple to repair and restore the temple, They gave it to the carpenters and builders and also used it to buy quarried stone and timbers for joining and making beams for the buildings that Judah's kings had destroyed. The men were doing the work with integrity. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah, Levites from the Merarites, 
and Zechariah and Meshulam from the Kohathites as supervisors. The Levites were all skilled with musical instruments. They were also over the porters and were supervising all those doing the work task by task. Some of the Levites were secretaries, officers, and gatekeepers. When they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple, and he gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan took the book to the king and also reported, Your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They have emptied out the silver that was found in the Lord's temple and have given it to the overseers and to those doing the work. Then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, The priest Hilkiah gave me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant Isaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. So Hilkiah and those the king had designated went to the prophetess. Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district, and they spoke with her about this. She said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the men who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods so as to anger me, with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. Say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, And because you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. I will indeed gather you to your ancestors, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. Then they reported this to the king. So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. The king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from the oldest to the youngest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites. And he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Amen. Malachi chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you 
and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave these to him. It called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So in turn, I in turn have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? Amen, and Lord have mercy. Well, my friends, that was a hard chapter to end on, but a powerful one. May the Lord bless us. May he turn our eyes to him. May he go with us and grant us his peace and presence. Good day to you, and Godspeed.